Good morning. It's April 1st, 2014, <clears throat> and this is Solder Smoke 159. Been a long time. Uh, we actually had a little, kind of a, sort of a Solder Smoke podcast between 158 and 159. That was my report from the Vienna Wireless Society's Winterfest Hamfest. Not actually a report, but a, but a video of a little talk that I, I gave at the uh, Hamfest. I was asked to speak about the, the Bidex transceiver projects. Uh, I really appreciate the guys from Vienna Wireless asking me to talk. I had a great time. And uh, thanks, special thanks to, to my wife, Elisa, who shot the video using her, her iPad. She did a great job. Uh, we put the video up on Vimeo and YouTube. There are links to it from the uh, Solder Smoke blog. So you could check out the, uh, the talk and, uh, and take a look at that. I think, think you might find it interesting. I basically talked the guys through um, the kind of the origins of the Bidex transceiver and, and how I built the two versions that I, uh, I built. There seemed to be a lot of interest, and uh, and it was it was really fun talking about it. I, I enjoyed it very much. And like I said, the video came out great thanks to Elisa. So you should you guys should check it out if you haven't seen it yet. I had a good time at the Hamfest, um, and uh, met a lot of great people. It was real, uh, really uh, great to meet Armand Hamill, the A1 UQO, who we've been corresponding with for for many years on the Solder Smoke blog and on email. Uh, and it was great to talk to Armand about uh, about QRP and talk about rigs and and he came to the talk and uh, it, it was just terrific. I have a picture of him up on the uh, on the Solder Smoke blog holding the uh, the Bidex 17 uh, transceiver. Uh, also met up again with Rex W1REX. You know I, I I met I had a booth I had my table right next to Rex uh, in the previous year's uh, Winterfest. And one of my big regrets from that event was that uh, Rex and I were both so busy uh, with sales that we didn't really have enough time to talk to each other. And I had to get out of there around noontime. And so I missed the opportunity that year uh, to talk to Rex. And I, I pledged this year to, to make up for that. And uh, I was able to do that. I didn't have a table this year. We just did the talk. And uh, afterwards, Rex, Rex was the speaker on the... Uh, on the agenda right after uh, right after me, and so I attended his talk. It was great fun. I really enjoyed his uh, his presentation. Unfortunately, we didn't have the uh, uh, the re the recorder going, so that one was uh, kind of lost to history. But it was uh, it was Rex talking about really about the joy of QRP, the joy of simple rigs. He's a big advocate for uh, quick short projects that uh, that don't take months and months to complete, and um, so it was a very interesting presentation. In the Q&A, I got to ask Rex a, a few things that I have been kind of wondering about, and, and also maybe one or two questions that I thought he should uh, talk about with the, the group. Uh, and I one thing is I, I asked, knowing the answer, I asked Rex if he had been involved in the famed uh, expedition to the main coast to try to go transatlantic with Mike Graney's voice-powered um, El Silbo uh, voice-powered uh, transmitter, and he, that his eyes lit up when I asked that question. And Rex uh, launched into a description of that historic effort on the coast to get uh, the, the voice-powered transmitter to cross over to the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, I don't think they actually made the contact, but uh, uh, it was it was a great fun and a, and a, and a noble effort. 
and it was fun to hear um, Rex uh, talking about that. Um, then I asked a uh, another question, and this was based on my uh, my knowledge of uh, Rex's recent activities, and this led to some real fun and uh, led to some real uh, <laughs> kind of for me important home brewing. Uh, I had seen some videos on this, and I. I asked about the original Tuna Tin 2 transmitter, the one that was built by Doug Dumas in 1976 and featured in the, I think it was the March 1976 issue of QST magazine. And I, I asked Rex there during the Q&A session whether he in fact conducts mojo transfer ceremonies using the original Tuna Tin 2. And he paused and took a deep breath, and he said, "Yes, this is true." Now I know it's true because I knew it was true because I saw them on, on YouTube <laughs> with Rex there transferring the mojo. The mojo is the spirit, the force, the power of the tuna tin too. Um, and then, then I had a follow-up question. I said, "Do you, in fact, have the original Doug Dumas W1FB tuna tin two transmitter?" in your possession here at the Vienna Wireless Society's Winterfest Hamfest? He said, yes, he did. He had it with him. And then I, I got with him after the, uh, after the Q&A session and said uh, that, Rex, I, I, I really need some mojo to be transferred. Now, I didn't have a, uh, a Tuna Tin 2 to be the recipient of the mojo, but I had tucked under my arm the BIDX-17 transmitter, and I figured, well, it's homebrew too. It's QRP. So we went back down to where um, Rex had the uh, had the uh, the tuna tin two uh, hidden away, but back at his table, and he conducted the uh, the mojo transfer ceremony. It's it was recorded for posterity and is now up on YouTube, visible via my uh, my blog soldersmoke.blogspot.com. You can check it out there. It was a lot of fun, and he, um, you know, he did all the uh, the all the the necessary and appropriate incantations, and uh, you know, touched. There was a an actual contact between the uh, the um, the coax connectors of of the two uh, rigs, and I must say, I noticed uh, an immediate increase in uh, in performance from the BIDX 17 transmitter. So it obviously worked, but then. Ladies and gentlemen, the the effect was really not so much on the BIDX 17, but as on but on me because I found myself right away more motivated to do certain things in the QRP area. Um, it brought back um, memories from from 1976. Some of them were uncomfortable memories, but but there they were, and and I found myself feeling the urge to build something, something specific. And that something specific was very, very closely related to the Tuna Tin 2. You see, after DeMar wrote the, the Tuna Tin 2 article in the March 1976 issue of QST, uh, Jay Rusgrove, another member of the ARRL staff, did a follow-up article for a receiver that was intended to be a kind of a, a complement to or to be used with the, uh, the Tuna Tin 2. And he called his project the Herring Aid 5. You get it? Herring Aid, Hearing Aid. And, uh, and 
while Doug Dumois built his rig on a tuna can, um, Rushgrove built his on kind of a, kind of, I don't know, I guess how you, how you would describe it, kind of a, an, an elliptical kind of, kind of oblong kind of, uh, sardine can for herrings. And it was called the Herring 85. It was a direct conversion receiver using five transistors, hence the five. And, um, it, one of the features of the project, and this is probably what attracted it to, attracted me to it way back when, was that it, it was, it used parts, all of which could be obtained at a local Radio Shack store. Now, this was important back in 1976 because this was, of course, the time before computers, the time before really rapid mail order. And, uh, anyway, the, the fact that I could get all the parts down at the Radio Shack, uh, I must have found very interesting. It didn't require, there were no exotic, difficult to obtain parts. Now, at the time, this seemed like a real benefit, but I didn't, I didn't understand at the time that it also caused some problems and more about that in a minute. But you didn't need any fancy, you know, ferrite or iron powered, powered, iron powdered, uh, toroid cores. You didn't need a big, expensive variable capacitor. Um, for the, uh, for the coils, what Rusgrove did was he took ordinary 10 microhenry and 100 microhenry RF chokes available from Radio Shack and wound, you know, secondary coils up on top of them. So we were using RF chokes and, um, and their, um, I think it was some ferrite material in the core for those RF chokes in lieu of the, the toroidal coils that we would use today. And instead of the variable capacitor, which is in some cases difficult to obtain, they used a, uh, Jay Rushgrove used a little varactor diode mechanism where you, you varied the, uh, the voltage on a pair of, of diodes and that changed the capacitance on the diodes. And that's basically how you, you tuned the receiver. Again, single conversion um, not, not single conversion, direct conversion, uh, receiver. So you're running the, the VFO right at the operating frequency. Both the Tuna Tin 2 and the Herring 8.5 were designed for 40 meters. Now, let's go back to 1976. I was, uh, 18 years old. I had just gotten out of high school and I had some time on my hands that summer. I was going to go off to the army in the fall. But um, that was a little bit, a bit, 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 bit off, and I, I had some time. And I, I had in mind, I'd read somewhere, it might have been, or I heard it from Gene Shepard, or I picked up somewhere, that the mark of the true radio amateur is that he or she is a home brewer, that they build their own gear. And I'd also heard that receivers were hard, that, you know, at that time, and I guess people were looking back, there was a perception that transmitter construction was relatively easy, especially, I guess, tube-type transmitter construction, but that receiver construction was difficult. And somehow I had gotten it into my head that to be considered among the, uh, the truly anointed, <laughs> among the, the true radio amateurs, I should build at least one receiver. And at the, around that time, QST of July 1976 uh, 
came to me, and there it was, and it looked like this was the perfect project for me. Now, in retrospect, it probably wasn't, but uh, anyway, I decided to, to give it a shot, and I, you know, I, I realized that there were some problems, a kind of, I was, this, this project in 1976 was almost doomed from the beginning. One, I really didn't have a good concept of what was going on in the circuit. I can kind of remember what it looked like through my 18-year-old eyes. And that circuit diagram, I wasn't looking at it as a, uh, as a collection of sub-circuits. To me, it just looked like a mass of parts. You know, so I didn't look at it as I do now and see an RF amplifier, a mixer stage, a VFO, and then audio amplifiers. For me, it was just, I just saw all these parts that had to go somehow on a board. Also, I had a lot, I had very, very little experience with actual building. So, in this, and, and, and our, I guess the, the, uh, the kind of the range of building techniques that were used at the time was more limited than what we have now. So, um, when they talked in the QST article about etching a board, um, I thought that that's what you had to do. So I actually went out and got the um, the etching solution from Radio Shack and actually etched the board using the pattern described in the QST article. Um, and that really, of course, in retrospect, wasn't necessary. I could have used ugly techniques. I could have used Manhattan techniques. But, but those techniques weren't really... Uh, widely discussed during, during those years. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, because the, 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 kind of the weird, not weird, but the, uh, the use of these kind of, um, coils, I was to discover would, would create, um, a lot of problems for me. The bottom line is I built this whole thing up. It probably took me several weeks during that summer of 1976, and I couldn't get it going. I, it just, failed and it was very very disheartening for me i remember sitting with it in front of the ht37 right here it is there's the the same ht37 sitting on my desk and i'm hooking up a battery and a speaker to it and having nothing but a little bit of hiss coming out now the hiss is important of course because that that indicates that that that, that at least the audio frequency amplifiers were working which in this rig is about i guess about uh about half the circuitry or more. Um, and I know now, I'm pretty sure, why I couldn't get it working. And I couldn't get it working because I never got that that oscillator going. And I, I didn't even really know that I could check on the oscillator's operation. I, I didn't. I don't think I realized that I could have just turned on my uh, my Drake 2B and tried to listen to it on on 40 meters to see if it was if to see if it was going. Um, I think that's how low my um, level of technical understanding of what was going on in the circuit was. But um, I th I'm pretty sure that the problem I had was getting that oscillator going. Because as I said, I heard the hiss from the, uh, from the audio amplifiers. And also, and here's an important clue, I remember at one point with the, with the headphone, headphones in my ears that I was, I was kind of fiddling around with the HT37 and all of a sudden I heard signals coming from the Herring 8-5. And what was happening was the, the, um, the Herring 8-5 was picking up RF probably as I was tuning the, um, the HT-37. And 
that should have given me a clue, <laughs> but it didn't. <laughs> you know, when you're when you're new at this, when you're when you're 18 and you've only been a ham for a few years and you haven't really built anything, and when there's no kind of internet support network of uh, willing and experienced Elmers who could advise you what to do, well, one thing led to another, and, and um, I couldn't get it going. And off I went, and that project, that board, disappeared. Who knows? It may be still sitting up there in my uh, in my mom's house up there in Rockland County, New York, but uh, it never uh, it never really worked. All right, so now I get the mojo. I've been given the mojo by W1REX, and and from W1FB himself. I mean, it's uh, it, it's pretty serious. So I've got the mojo. I've decided. All right, time to go. Let's get this thing going. So I go to the ARRL website and I pull up the article that uh, Jay Rusgrove wrote back in 1976 and I take another shot at it. I, first I discover that I have almost all the parts in my uh, junk box. There was an updated version of, the, um, of, the, of this receiver done by NorCal in 1998 using um, more modern parts. In the NorCal version, they went with toroids instead of the um, RF choke coils. But I wanted to do as much of this rig as close as possible to the original 1976 design. So um, I dug out and found in my uh, junk box a few uh, 10 microhenry chokes that looked like they were from, from Radio Shack. So um, at least for the, um, the problematic... A coil in the VFO. I wanted to stick as close as I could to the original design to see if I might find out exactly what the problem was. And um, anyway, I started putting it together. I had almost all the parts. It's all simple stuff. And um, I got got it all together on the board. And again, it it couldn't. I couldn't get it to work. I couldn't get the oscillator to go. And that was uh, that was uh, that was like good news and bad news. Bad news because wow, <laughs> 38 years later, I still have the same problem. But uh, the good news is now I have an opportunity to trouble troubleshoot and find out where I went wrong. And I um, I was sitting there and I wound the coil and I I know now about phasing and uh, phasing is particularly important in oscillators because you want to make sure that the uh, the energy that you're sending back from the output to the input is in the proper phase because if it's not well it won't oscillate um, and there were phasing dots on uh, Jay Rusgrove's uh, uh, original schematic but as I was fiddling around with this thing on the feedback coil that went from the uh, output to the input at one point I just said alright let me flip the um, the uh, the wires on this feedback coil flip them around and see if I can get this thing to percolate. And sure enough, as soon as I flipped them around, I um, I got that thing going. So for a brief instant there, I said, Aha! It wasn't my fault. It was a mistake. You see, because I had wired it the correct way. I had wired it in conformity with the QST schematic. And I had put the top of one coil and connected it to the right spot on the on the circuit diagram. I had taken the top of the other coil and put it on the right spot, and it wouldn't work that way. And only when I reversed these wires and put 
the bottom of the coil where the top should be, did it go? Did it work? And I thought, aha, I have discovered an error. QST Magazine, those big shots at the ARRL, had, back in 1976, made a mistake. A mistake that shattered my 18-year-old homebrewer dreams. <laughs> and I, so I lived with this fantasy for, uh, for a day or so. But then I, I, I took a picture of the circuit and put it up on, um, on my blog page. And I didn't accuse the uh, QST and J. Rusgrove and the ARRL of this grievous technical error. I just asked a question. I said, here's the picture of what I built. Here's the schematic diagram. Can anybody out there tell me what went wrong here? And ladies and gentlemen, the answer came all the way from New Zealand. ZL2DEX Dex, who is um, a wizard down there in New Zealand, spotted the the problem almost immediately. And, and I think he was the only one who spotted it. He looked at my little picture, and I had the um, that coil, that, that uh, feedback coil, wound with blue uh, insulated uh, copper wire. And Dex took a look at it and wrote me a very kind email and said, Bill, the coil sense is wrong. In other words, the direction of wrapping the wire was wrong. And and I, and, he, and this is something really that, you know, I've, I've wound a lot of toroidal coils, a lot of bifiller and trifiller toroidal coils. And I never really pay attention to whether the the primary winding and the, and the secondary winding are going in the in the same direction, you know, clockwise or counterclockwise around the core. But apparently, that makes a difference. And I confirmed it because I did a little experiment and I put it up on the blog where I, I wound a, a toroidal transformer and looked at the, um, the input and the output signals on my oscilloscope. And then I took the secondary off and wound it in the opposite sense, the opposite uh, kind of direction, counterclockwise or clockwise. And sure enough, when I put that up on the uh, on the oscilloscope, in with 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 the sense reversed, it was um, the, uh, the the signals were at the primary and the secondary were out of phase. So it does make a difference. Those phasing dots are not just not just the uh, whether you're attaching the top of the coil to the top of the coil. That's important too, of course. But, and there's also an element of, um, of rotational sense in how the, uh, the windings are placed on the core. And that is probably what I failed to realize back in 1976. So I probably wound the secondary on that, um, on that, uh, on that RF choke or rather round the, wound the, uh, the feedback coil on the RF choke, but I probably did it in the wrong direction, and that prevented the, uh, the feedback from occurring as it needs to occur for the, um, for the VFO to actually <laughs> to oscillate. Now, you know, when you look at QST articles from that era, you realize, I think, that they were dealing with, with hams who were operating at a higher technical level. Now, I know that's a controversial statement, but I think it's true. 
And so they wouldn't necessarily spell everything out because there was an assumption of a certain technical level among the readers that we, uh, that we probably don't have today. So Jay, at that point, back in 1976, probably didn't feel the need to, to spell out all the, um, the meanings of those phasing dots because uh, he probably figured that, that, uh, that people would know. Well, I didn't, and, uh, and I think that's what got me into trouble. I probably should have poked away at it a little bit more, but again, this, is, this goes with homebrewing experience. You know, I, I was much too willing to just sort of quit and think, oh, it doesn't work. And whereas if I had kind of poked and prodded and experimented a little bit more, I would have gotten it going. But anyway... It took me 38 years, but I did get it going. And, um, and, uh, and, and man, yeah, revenge is sweet. The, the receiver started to work. Like almost all receivers that I build, I find that I have to kind of gradually coax a decent signal out of it. There's a lot of tweaking and peaking and, uh, and feedback elimination and, and all that kind of stuff. But, but this little receiver sounds very, very nice. Almost all direct conversion receivers sound great. They all have their problems, and this one certainly has, has its problems. Steve Smith from uh, out there in California wrote in, noting that the, uh, the mixer circuit, which is just uh, one uh, common, common emitter uh, BJT transistor, is uh, kind of quaint, as I think he put it, and uh, very prone to uh, broadcast band breakthrough. And that's certainly true. And there's much better ways to do the mixer, but this one was built for simplicity and low parts count, so um, it filled the bill there. I did have um, some pretty serious uh, motorboating problems, motorboating be, being, of course, when your audio amplifier starts to sound like a uh, motorboat, especially as you turn the audio gain up. And I had to struggle with that for a while. I finally determined that the, um, the feedback was probably occurring right around the mixer stage. And um, this is, uh, I think, a problem caused by the use in this circuit of kind of relatively big, you know, almost uh, one-inch square audio transformers. Some of the more modern uh, designs don't have these big audio transformers in there. <clears throat> and I think that helps because these audio transformers are almost guaranteed to cause a certain amount of feedback unless you're, you're really, really careful. But... Um, I moved some of the parts around. I moved one of the toroidal coils that I had in there further away from this uh, AF transformer. That seemed to help a bit. But I think the real uh, cause of the audio frequency oscillation was uh, feedback via the 12-volt uh, the power line to the various stages. So I tried some uh, increased decoupling, some bigger um, electrolytics to knock down any audio frequencies that might be on that 12-volt uh, line. And that helped a bit, but uh, what it really would really help was when I kind of separated the 12 volt supplies. The uh, I put the the audio amplifiers on a completely separate supply, and then I powered the um, the VFO, uh, the mixer, and the RF amplifier from a second uh, 12 volt battery, and that completely eliminated the problem. So that gave me a a big clue that that's where the uh, that was the path that the feedback was taking to create the motor boating and the audio frequency oscillation. So the the obvious solution was not to live life with two different power supplies for this little direct conversion receiver, but to uh, 
to break that feedback path. So I um, um, following some good advice that came in over the internet from Tony Fishpool in the UK. He was rel- relaying advice from uh, from Ian G three R O O, who uh, helped Tony with a with a problem uh, many years earlier. I uh, I just basically cut that uh, 12 volt line that was supplying um, VCC to all the uh, all the stages, and I I cut it so that the uh, audio amplifiers were on one side and all the rest of the circuitry was on the other, and I put a 10 ohm resistor between the two, and I put electrolytic caps to ground on either side of the resistor, and sure enough, that was enough to break the uh, the feedback path and stop the thing from motorboating. So this was great fun kind of troubleshooting this little receiver and getting it going. I was getting input from New Zealand, from the UK, words from encur- words of encouragement from many other places. And uh, we finally got the, uh, the Herring Aid 5 percolating very, very nicely. In the course of this, I, uh, I got a nice email from Jay Rusgrove himself. And uh, Jay said that he was very pleased that the uh, that somebody was was still working on on his his herring aid receiver it's a nice receiver it's you know like i said it's 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 simple it's um it's no drake 2b i'll tell you that um it sounds good you know one thing i noticed this the uh you know the varactor uh diode tuning mechanism this has been noted in literature many times you might think that this would be more stable because you don't have these big plates of a variable capacitor in there but um, there's quite a bit of uh, warm-up drift with these um, diodes. I'm not using actual Varactor diodes. I'm using two just two ordinary uh, little, uh, I think it's uh, 1N914 uh, uh, diodes in there. But as these things warm up, the, uh, the, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, kind of change in capacitance across the diodes. So this, this receiver actually drifts quite a bit. Even though it's a solid-state receiver, it almost drifts sort of like a a tube receiver that's that's warming up, and that's because of the uh, the the diode tuning action in there. And uh, I think in in some of Doug Dumas' books, he's talked about this. So uh, I might eventually take those diodes out and put a little capacitor in there just to make it more stable. But for now, I'm leaving it as uh, as Jay Rusgrove uh, designed it and uh, having a lot of fun with it. Okay, but once I got it done, of course, I started feeling the mojo. I started thinking about the Tuna Tin 2 that Rex had showed me at Vienna Wireless, and I decided that I I needed to, to follow up, and I needed to go uh, kind of a one step further. You know, I the score was pretty much settled at this point. I had uh, completed the, the receiver project that I started in 1976, but I think I needed, I felt like I needed a Tuna Tin 2. So... But I, you know, it's funny. I I almost I almost felt compelled to do this. I didn't I didn't really want to. You know, I'm not all that interested in CW anymore. And minimalist radio. I don't know. I'm I'm more kind of with um, with Wes Hayward on minimalist radio. Wes, uh, I think sometimes points out that the minimalist radio thing gets carried a bit too far, and performance starts to suffer. So I was thinking, ah, the tuna tin, it might be a bit minimalist. I was never really crazy about the whole fish can, you know, the, the, the can, <laughs> the fish can thing. But, you know, having had Doug Dumas, uh, tuna tin 2 in my hands during the mojo ceremony, 
made me look on it a bit differently. And I, I started rummaging around. I was actually kind of hoping that I wouldn't find the necessary parts. I figured that the crystals might be a showstopper, and I wasn't sure whether I had any 40-meter crystals there. But when I got to my box of rocks, crystal box here, and all of a sudden the crystals started falling, falling out, 7030, 7040, 7060, no, 7030, 7040, 7050, and 7110, all of which would be useful for CW contacts on the 40 meter band. These are the there were the crystals, there were the transistors, and you know, here was the final mark, the final indication that fate was pushing me to this. I walked into the kitchen and I said, uh, I said, honey, do we have any uh, cans of tuna around here? And she said, oh yeah, I just picked one up because she has, uh, she has a friend uh, in the neighborhood who is originally from uh, from Belarus and who speaks Russian and knows people in the Russian community, and they had gone to the Russian store here in Northern Virginia and had picked up this really exotic-looking can of Russian tuna with, you know, Russian markings and a Russian label. It looked just, it just, you know, it just said DX. <laughs> so I uh, I confiscated the, uh, the can of Russian tuna, quickly emptied it out, cleaned it up, and the and the project began. Um, you know, I, it, it was really easy to build. I um, I kind of used the modern versions of the circuit. Again, uh, I didn't go uh, I didn't go all the way with this one. I didn't use the um, the same kinds of uh, of chokes as coil cores that uh, that uh, Doug Demore did. Again, here I used the toroids that are that appear in some of the more modern versions of the circuitry, and I think NorCal and NJQRP. NJQRP has some, um, George Heron has some really good um, schematics for both the Tuna Tin 2 and, uh, and the Herring 8.5 on the NJQRP website, so that was a big help to me. But um, I did use uh, toroidal cores, and it was great, you know, because when you build one of these projects, I, I, you feel... I always say that it's always good to put some um, some soul in the new machine. And while we were at uh, at Vienna Wireless uh, Winterfest, as I was leaving, Rex was giving me all kinds of presents. He gave me a, four or five of these little uh, matchbox boxes that he had, and some of them contained his uh, me pads, main pads. These are little isolation pads that uh, that Rex has available. I think they're great. I mean, they're 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 much neater looking than the uh, than the chunks of uh, PC board material that I use, and they seem to prevent the solder from drooling over the side and, and shorting out your circuit as my isolation pads do. So anyway, I had some of these me pads, and also Rex had given me a number of little boxes that had um, RF amplifier transistors in there. Perfect. So. Um, I cracked open some of those uh, me pad and RF transistor boxes and used as many of those me pads as I could on this my um, my Manhattan style version of the uh, of the tuna tin two. I, I built mine Manhattan style, so everything was on top of the board. I used me pads and I used the transistors that Rex gave me. 
So this was good mojo, uh, good karma, soul in the new machine. And uh, and I must say, the uh, the Tuna Tin 2 uh, gave me no problem at all. And of course, it's very simple. It's just the oscillator and one little RF amplifier stage. There is a low-pass filter, Steve Smith. Yes, indeed. It might not have as many elements as you'd like, but uh, but there it is. Anyway, I got this thing going, and it, it just went, it, it just fired right up, right away, and and delivered the promised 200 milliwatts. Uh, this was my first, sorry, I bumped the mic. This is my first uh, experience, really, with milliwatting. And um, it was uh, it was very, very pleasing, I must say. I, I put the, the Tuna Tin 2 on the air on March 9th, uh, 200 milliwatts out. I was not using the, the Herring 8.5. It was still, at this point, kind of in the debugging stage. But... Um, I hooked the Tuna Tin 2 up with my uh, trusty Drake 2B receiver and um, started uh, looking around for contacts. And on March 9th, on the first morning that I put it on, I, I made contact on 40 meters. 7110, kind of up in the old uh, novice CW band, I contacted AB2RA, Alpha Bravo 2 Radio Alpha. Her name is Jan. And her signal, when it came back, had that had a bit of um, kind of chirp on it. So this was for me a very good sign because it it was an indicator to me that I was uh, contacting a kindred spirit, maybe somebody who who also was running homebrew gear. And sure enough, Jan was running a homebrew rig. It's very rare, very very rare. I don't think it's ever happened to me on on phone where I worked another station who was using a homebrew rig. It happens more frequently, of course, on CW, but I think it was really, really good luck that the first time I fire up this little tuna tin to the very first station I work is using a, um, a homebrew uh, transmitter. She was using a, a tube-type rig built around an 807 tube, and she was also using uh, a vintage tube-type receiver. So we had... Uh, homebrew transmitters and vintage receivers on, on both ends of the contact. Uh, Jan is a very impressive uh, radio amateur. I went to, to her uh, QRZ.com page and her websites. She's very active with the, uh, the boat anchor gear and uh, just a very, a very fine business radio amateur. So uh, if she hears this, thanks very much, Jan, for that uh, wonderful contact. It was very, uh, <laughs> it was great <laughs> to put the tuna tin two on and and work a, a station using a homebrew transmitter. I quickly made about uh, about six contacts with the Tuna Tin 2 with the Drake 2B. The last one was was really interesting. There was a station calling. He was um, uh, quite quite strong. It was uh, John AF4 Papa Delta, and I suspected he was close. And I didn't realize how close he was within um, within I'd say three quarters of a mile. Of my house, right down the road, really just a just a few streets down, and uh, I, I I plan on sometime here in the spring putting the uh, the tuna tin two in my backpack, stopping by on my bicycle on the way to work to show John the rig that he that he worked, but it was good and good. It was not exactly DX, but it was kind of fun. So good six good contacts with the uh, with the um, with the tuna tin two and the Drake two B. So, you know, at this point, I am feeling kind of smug. I am feeling like I have, uh, 
I have I have really conquered some uh, important amateur radio homebrewing territory. I had uh, kind of I felt that I had kind of followed up on the injection of mojo that uh, that Rex had administered at the Vienna Wireless uh, Hamfest at the end of February. So in a very short period of time, we got the receiver built and we got the uh, the transmitter going. And uh, the weather weather in Washington area in the Northeast, most of you guys know this, it's been really a terrible winter. And I have wimped out completely from riding my bike. Last winter, I rode the bike almost all winter. This this year was just impossible because the bike trail is covered with snow and ice and the bike doesn't work very well that way. So my wife has been driving me to work and so she dropped me off one morning there at, uh, at my, my work site and as I'm walking through the door, I cross paths with a uh, a fellow radio amateur who works at the same place. His name is David Cowhag. Now, David and I have kind of uh, kind of an interesting history here at Ham Radio. Um, we were both at the same time appointed by Wayne Green as Hambassadors. <laughs> 73 Magazine had this column called 73 International. And what it did is it looked for uh, U.S. radio amateurs who were resident overseas who were living in foreign places, and they sent in columns describing ham radio wherever they were living. So uh, I wrote a column from the Dominican Republic, where I was, and David at the time was in Naha, in, in Okinawa, Japan, and he wrote a column from, from Naha. And it was through those columns that I got to know David, and I read, sent him a note, said we both worked for the, uh, for the same employer in the same kind of line of work. He was working at the consulate, in, uh, in Naha, and I was at the U.S. Embassy in Santo Domingo, and uh, he very kindly sent me kind of a care package from Japan that included an old issue of CQ magazine from the 30s. So uh, that was very nice, and many, many years later, we meet up, and uh, I ran into him walking into the uh, to the State Department, and I started telling him about my... I gave him my tales of uh, Tuna Tin 2 and Herring Aid 5, QRP, Daring Do. I talked about the contacts that I made, the stations that I heard, and I was just kind of bragging there, you know, as you do sometimes. And he said to me, um, um, yeah, but have you made any contacts with the two of them together? Have you put them together and made any contacts? And I kind of gulped and I said, well, no, not yet, but I'm going <laughs> to. <laughs> and he was right. That was something that, that needed to be completed. I took care of that uh, uh, just a couple days ago. On uh, on March 30th, I put the, the Hearing Aid 5 and the Tuna Tin 2 combination on the air. I had to do some uh, some adjustments. The, uh, the Tuna Tin 2 needed a side tone. So I put a little piezo buzzer across the, the keying line, and that seemed to do the trick. Um, I need to work. Out a, I had to work out a muting arrangement because this, uh, when I was on key down, I didn't want the uh, the receiver screeching at me. So I just made an arrangement so that the TR switch on the Tuna Tin Two basically just cut off the speaker on the uh, Herring Eight Five. It was crude, but it worked. Uh, I got up early in the morning on the 30th and started calling CQ. I was afraid that the uh, little piezo buzzer that I'd put inside. The uh, the actual tuna tin was making too much racket. I was afraid it was going to wake up the family. So <laughs> this is how you make these kind of adjustments. I reached in there with my uh, pliers and pulled the piezo buzzer off the um, the actual tin of the tuna tin, and I wrapped um, one layer of um, of gorilla tape around it 
and that reduced the audio output, I guess, by about 20 dB, <laughs> which was fine. It was enough for me to hear, but it let the family sleep. So back I went to CQing, and wow, uh, I, I think he was calling CQ. I called him, but my first QSO with this, with this combination was W4ELP in Georgia. Now, here's the weird thing. Um, I call, he calls CQ, I call him back, and he comes back, N2CQR, this is W4ELP, and he says, good morning, Bill, are you still on the Tuna Tin 2? Wow. Then I realized, Ed was one of the six contacts that I had made a week or so earlier when I was running the Tuna Tin 2 and the Drake 2B. So, <laughs> here we are in a repeat contact. I guess it's not that much of a coincidence. We're both on around the same frequencies around the same time of the morning. But uh, it was kind of cool. I felt like uh, I felt like somebody out there knew that I was struggling along with the Tuna Tin 2. We had a very nice contact. I, you know, didn't miss a word on on either way. And, and it was really great. And I had a I had another one later in the day, but wow, mission accomplished, very cool. I don't know if I'm going to run this rig too much because it is, it's not exactly the most comfortable um, QRP CW arrangement, uh, but I did manage to get at least two contacts out of the, uh, the Tuna Tin 2. I work, afterwards, I worked a guy in uh, down in Richmond. We had a nice contact there also. Uh, so, yes, so on the 30th, we had two very nice contacts using the Tuna Tin 2 and the, uh, and the Herring Aid 5. All right, let's see. That's That takes care of the main story for this week. But listen, guys, as long as we're going minimalist, I wanted to alert you something that I heard about. Kind of in a minimalist mood, I uh, I, I came across a project. Actually, somebody sent me this, and I, I had to confirm it myself But it, because it, it, it's, it's just really, really cool. You know, we all love Altoids. I, I love Altoids so much that I deliberately keep instead of having a, a roll of lifesavers or something at work i have a on my desk i always keep a box of of altoids it's they are a curiously refreshing mint and they uh they perform the necessary um, oral hygiene functions for you there during the work day um but but it's also very cool to have uh, just a little can of altoids it's kind of a little reminder of ham radio there in the workplace so uh, i always have one there and you know, Altoids tins are, there's almost a cult following for the Altoid tins out there. We've, we've been using them in so many of our uh, radio projects and experimentations. The internet has many, many rigs, features many, many rigs uh, built into Altoids boxes. And, uh, and you know, they're, let's face it, they're very popular for radio, um, radio projects. But uh, I came across a project in which even more of the Altoids package was used to produce a working receiver, and this I found very, very interesting. Um, I got an email from uh, from a fellow W1APR, Don T. Crader, and Don writes, uh, Bill, sure, Altoids tins make great little project boxes, but we here in the laboratory of the UMass Radio Club wanted to see if we could use more of the Altoid package to build a radio, and indeed we could. <laughs> indeed they did. We took the metal from one of the Altoids boxes, cut out two little panels, and using the paper that comes with the Altoid, the one marked Curiously Strong Mint, um, using the Curiously Strong Mint paper, 
made a capacitor. Uh, pretty good. Well, I mean, that's not that, that unusual. We've seen that done before. Um, you know, I've actually I've seen variable capacitors made like using credit card plastic and things like that. But then, um, then Don continues. Then we started thinking about the Altoids themselves. Might they also be useful? Remembering the experiments that you and Mike KL7R did many years ago using various materials as detectors, and Don is correct that uh, Mike and I, you know, fooled around with Galena and then fool's gold, and Mike sent me a, a load of fool's gold from Alaska. We found that fool's gold, uh, when combined with um, a, a phosphor bronze cat whisker, was a, a really excellent uh, detector. Um, Don asks, uh, he says, uh, yeah, with various materials, fool's gold and all that, we asked ourselves, hey, what about the Altoids themselves? After all, they have a crystalline structure, correct? Might they be useful as a simple detector, much the same way as the fool's gold worked? We immediately launched into an experiment using a phosphor bronze cat whisker. And would you believe it, sure enough, we found that certain Altoids mints, when properly configured, were able to form a useful PN junction when pay placed in contact with the phosphor bronze cat whisker. We have successfully used these uh, this detector as a uh, as essentially a crystal radio. Now Don points out that they had to use quite a bit of audio amplification because they were just getting very 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 little signal out of this thing. But can you imagine that using the actual Altoid? as a uh, um, <laughs> as the detector I, I guess that this just continues what uh, what what Mike and I were working on and uh, and and Don has sent um, some pictures along and I'm going to put them up on the blog so that you guys can check this out it's really really pretty pretty cool <laughs> thanks very much for that Don Don T. Crader W1APR UMass great all right let's see what else moving on uh, bad news fellas you know it, oh, it's not that bad could be a lot worse, but uh, my uh, Tech 465 that was brought back to life, it worked for about a month, and then it um, it died again. You know, I, I it, it's no absolutely no fault of the uh, the fellow who very valiantly and and generously worked on it. We think what happened was just one of the many uh, capacitors in there, kind of these big square orange drop capacitors in one of the power supplies what let loose and uh so um it's been suggested that i crack this thing open and get an esr meter and try to find out which one of the um the capacitors is bad but i i just i just i don't want to crack that thing open again so i just put it off in the corner i'm just leaving it there and i, I maybe one of these days the uh I'll, I'll get motivated to go in there and take another another shot at fixing the tech 465 we know that most of it works, but one of those capacitors went bad, and I uh, I just am not in the mood right now. I, it, it's one of those things you have to know the kind of circuitry you like to work on and the kind of circuits you don't like to work on. And I discovered that I just don't like to work on Tech 465s. <laughs> not only that, I, not only don't don't I like it, I don't have the requisite skills and abilities. So uh, I'm more more prone to to doing damage than. Uh, than, than fixing anything so kind of in keeping with I guess the Hippocratic oath do no harm 
I'm going to leave that thing off in the corner. And uh, maybe something will happen that will cause it to go back into functioning condition. But uh, I'm not messing with it right now. Uh, okay. Anyway, but, you know, and I hate to say this. Look, I, I look the Rigol scope, the little digital, you know, box from, from China. It's doing a fantastic job. I love that thing. It's great. And I, I frankly, it's doing everything I need it to do. I, ha I do have alongside a little Hamag analog scope. But the Rigol, and again, it pains me to say this, but uh, it's uh, it's doing a great job. It's true. It's it's working great. I I I love that thing. All right. Yes, it's time for. Ooh, that's awesome. Yeah, solder smoke mailbag. Uh, All right. Listen, I uh, th this started out on the air, but then it turned into the mailbag. I I got on forty meters with my new. 4020 bit x and one of the first one of the early stations i contacted was dino pappas famed home brewer dino pappas kl0s solder smoke correspondent for many years and i heard him on there he was on with the the drake tech group man these are some tech guru gurus they're talking about the old drake equipment and i uh they were they were calling for check-ins and i called i think i was so excited i uh overdrove the uh the bit x a bit it was very embarrassing because you don't want to overdrive your transmitter when you're talking to the Drake Tech Group. They know what they're doing. They know which end of the soldering iron to grab. <laughs> and Med Control promptly informed me that I was hitting it a bit too hard. So I, I controlled myself. I backed off and I checked into the group and said hello to Dino Pappas on 40 meter SSB with a homebrew transceiver and the drake tech group how cool is that we uh, exchanged emails afterwards uh, very nice uwe uh, uh uwe dl4ac sent me some very very nice information about his very fine business hex beam antenna and, and a really beautiful tower arrangement he had to put this thing in the sky guys i'm feeling the mojo here i'm feeling like i need to build a directional antenna and i have uh, sketched out a hex beam project. I want to build mine uh, kind of flat top. I'm not crazy about the uh, the blown out umbrella loop uh, look where the thing looks like it's an umbrella that got blown out by the wind. So I'm thinking I'm going to build mine flat, and uh, that might be a project for, project for the springtime. But uh, thanks DL4AC for sending me that information. Had some real nice uh, correspondence with uh, Farhan since we last spoke. Uh, Farhan has been doing a lot of work on his Minima general coverage transceiver. A really, really interesting rig. And in the course of doing that, Farhan came up with a very neat RC-coupled RF amplifier. Now, I'm a big fan of uh, Farhan's RF amplifiers. I built, I think, three or four of his JBOT, just a bunch of transistor amplifiers. And uh, he came up with another good one. It's an RC-coupled RF amp that's designed for the minima. It's designed to take the, the very low... RF output of the minima, I think at one milliwatt level, and take it up to about five watts. And he started out by asking himself, why couldn't we come up with an RF discrete component replacement of the LM386? Now, Arv Evans and others had come up with a, um, a replacement at audio frequencies for the LM386 using discrete uh, complementary pair um, uh, uh, 2N3N2N. 3906 and 2N3904 uh, transistors, 
And Farham asked himself the question, why couldn't we do something similar at RF levels? And that's what he did. He came up with something that is sort of similar to the discrete component replacement for the LM386, but he did it at RF. So he calls his design the RF386. Check it out. Just just uh, Google, you know, Farhan phone stack RF386 or just Farhan RF386. If you have trouble finding it, shoot me an email. I'll send you the link. Been exchanging emails with Bert out at Charlottesville. Been discussing physics stuff, special, special relativity, and its significance in understanding uh, inductive reactants and all that. Great stuff. Good to hear from you again, Bert. Our friend Roger Willems out there in California. What a great guy Roger is. What a great radio amateur. He sent me a copy of um, John F. Ryder's Perpetual Troubleshooter's Manual. We both got a chuckle out of the, the title. We both agreed that that title seemed aimed directly at me, the Perpetual Troubleshooter's Manual. Roger has also been helping Elisa with her uh, her new website for uh, her garden design business. Roger is a true IT Mac wizard and miracle worker. His company is scooter-it.com. Thanks again, Roger. Roger, thanks a lot, and uh, really appreciate all your help and friendship over the years. Um, got a nice email from Edward, WH7TangoTango. Tango. Get this, here's here's a QTH for you. Let me make sure I get it pronounced, pronounced right. Wahiawaha. No. Wahiawa, that's it. Wahiawa, Hawaii. Hey, you know, I grew up watching Hawaii Five-O. I can handle these Hawaiian pronunciations. Wahiawa. They'd always be sending the detectives out to Wahiawa to investigate the murder. Um, Wahiawa, Hawaii, Edward, WH7TT, sent me a big mahalo, uh, and also a big mahalo to Alan Walke. He said that uh, he likes the podcast and he likes Alan's excellent videos. He's getting into homebrew out there in Wahiawa. Thanks, Edward, very much for the, uh, for the, uh, for the, for the best wishes and for the, for the email and, uh, mahalo back at you, old man there. Great, great stuff. Hey, there's a nice email. Got, a, got an email from Thomas, LA3PNA. Haven't heard from Thomas in a long time. Thomas was the young fellow who several years ago sent me the, uh, log amplifier chips from my W7ZOI power meter. Um, the AD something or other chips he sent me that made, allowed me to build that device. Thanks again for that, Thomas. Thomas is still melting solder. Lately, he's working on some really exotic stuff. He's working on 5.7 gigahertz, 6 centimeter direct conversion receivers. He says, I just need to figure out how to build a VXO that doesn't drift too much after being multiplied 288 times. <laughs> Good luck with that, Thomas. I'm sure you'll, you'll fix it. Maybe a huff and puff, something like that. <laughs> Uh, Todd Gale, VE3BPO. Todd is a true homebrew hero. He has a wonderful website. I find myself going to Todd's website just about every time I turn on the soldering iron. He's got all these great calculators and uh, applets in there. And he sent me some nice words of encouragement when I was struggling with my motorboating hearing aid receiver. Thanks for that, Todd. And thanks for all the great work you do at that wonderful QRP Pops website. Here's a blast from the past. I got an email from... Uh, John, EI7BA, um, Echo India 7, Bad Apples. Um, John is an old friend from Azores days. In the Azores, I was one, one F-Zone skip 
and a hop away from uh, Ireland. And so I was on the air with John quite a bit on 17 meters. Uh, he, he, you know, he gives, he gave me some of these great phrases and some of them actually made it into the solder smoke book. He was the one who, when describing the, uh, the magical properties of WD-40, he said to me, Bill, it's the Pope's pee. <laughs> and I, I guess that, that was a compliment, meaning that it was very effective. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I heard John coming through on 17 meters. He couldn't hear me uh, with my little QRP signal on the dipole, but I was uh, motivated to send him an email and renew our uh, our correspondence. So good to hear from you again, John. Glad you to hear you're still still transmitting on good old 17 meters. Um, Nigel Evans of the Dover Constructors Club checked in. He's thinking about building a bit X. Uh, great to hear from you, Nigel. And uh, regards to, to Ian and Tony and all the all the all the lads from uh, from Dover. Keep it up. I, I already mentioned ZL2DEX and his uh, his phasing dot wiring winding sense rotational sense solution to my hearing aid problem. Thanks for that again for that Dex. And um, finally, in the mailbag, had some nice QSOs with a a fellow who I guess it could be characterized as a real character W1IDL Vince. Um, we've had some we had some great conversations and uh, some discussions of the BitX. And afterwards, he checked out my website and discovered that I am a uh, a Gene Shepard fan. And he sends in a nice Shep story. He said, Bill, I was a theater musician for a number of years in New York City, and the curtain would come down between 11.15 and 11.30 p.m. All the guys from the theater company would then head out, get in their cars, and sit there for at least half an hour listening to Gene Shepard. Why sit there and not drive? Well, we had good reception in the back of the theater, and should we drive off, we would lose the station. I think it was WNYC at the time. So they all sat there listening to Shep. Time well spent. Thanks for that, Vince. Thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, that brings us to the end of this episode of Solder Smoke. We're hoping that the winter is over. We're hoping that this is the last blast, but we've said that before. Anyway, seven threes from a uh, a cold and slushy Northern Virginia. The Solder Smoke podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke. That's one word at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at CafePress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well... 
we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!